Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. On this President's Day, I thought it'd be a good idea to take a look at the faith of American presidents. My guest is Dr. Gary Scott Smith. He is the retired chair of the History Department at Grove City College. He's author of Faith in the Presidency, From George Washington to George W. Bush, and Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of American Presidents. Gary, great to have you back. Thanks. Thanks, Al. So we've got uh, the U.S. presidents. You often hear people say, well, you know, how important can religion be to a U.S. president? Uh, Don't we have a separation of church and state in the United States? And uh, uh, this doesn't seem to have been too great a concern for American presidents in their own religious life. I mean, uh, we're not required to separate religion from politics, just institutions from institutions, right? Church and state. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Do you know many of the presidents who, who have thought there was a conflict between the First Amendment and their own faith? Well, probably Jimmy Carter, ironically enough. That is funny, yeah. Most, most scruples about that, because as a Southern Baptist and that denomination has taken a pretty strong stand historically on separation of church and state, Baptists in our earlier history were burned by establishments that uh, Congregationalists and Episcopalians had. But, I mean, he, 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 he spoke most about that among American presidents, but, of course— he was a deeply religious Southern Baptist right, who right. Uh, continues at this age to teach Sunday school. Yeah, I mean, I'm, did I'm, while he was. I but remember it, talking anyway, to so him. He, I, I talked with him sure. about this at one time, and he told me how important uh, it was uh, that he, he played a role in helping to get Bibles into communist China <laughs> while he was president. So right, and he and he personally witnessed to leaders of various nations right. who were totalitarian. Yeah, and he spoke openly and often about his faith on the campaign trail and as president. But he did sometimes express uh, concerns about the <clears throat> separation of church and state, and concern that he didn't want to show favoritism toward any one denomination. So, kind of irritated some Southern Baptists actually while he was president. <laughs> Well, I, there was a time, there was a time during the Clinton years where we had uh, Bill Clinton, a Southern Baptist, Al Gore, a Southern Baptist, as vice president, and Newt Gingrich, a Speaker of the House, who was at that time a Southern Baptist. So, good heavens, had uh, Clinton died, we would have had another Southern Baptist in the, in the White House, and if Gore had died, we would have had a Southern Baptist in the White House with Gingrich. I think. Um, so I don't think Southern Baptists have that much to worry about. Um, no, they don't. Uh, ironically enough, too, though, Carter's reluctance to reach out as fully to the evangelical community as he could have and even hire a religious liaison to, to work with them uh, really hurt him in the election of 1980. I agree. And yeah, It was a combination of his policies, but also his lack of responsiveness to the evangelical community that prompted a lot of them to favor Reagan over him. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I do. I remember that. Um, presidents, like other uh, politicians, can use religion uh, to kind of further their own agendas. So there's a misuse of religion that occurs as well. Um, any presidents jump to mind who, uh, you might say, abused their faith? Well, that's a tough question. Um, virtually every president has been accused of that. 
um, <clears throat> by cynics mm-hmm. and skeptics, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes perhaps legitimately so, when you're in an environment where a lot of people hold, hold deeply religious convictions and their religious values are very important to them, then as a good politician, you want to build bridges with them. You want to speak to them in ways that will be that will resonate with the positions and values they hold. So sure. logically, you're going to try to do that. Um, to make the judgment that they're doing it only for that reason uh, is a difficult one to do because we can't read their hearts. Right. Um, we can say if they're speaking out of character in terms of what they normally talk about in private and public relations, uh, do they do they seem to change in terms of their behavior and language while they're president versus before and after the presidency? But I think we also need to remember when we make that judgment that being president of the United States is a huge, huge responsibility. And so you're looking for internal resources. You're looking for spiritual guidance and direction and help when you're in that role. And as Lincoln famously said, I went, I was driven to my knees because I had nowhere else to go. And <laughs> lots of other presidents have quoted that, right? Yeah. Because yeah. that's Obama said that, uh, Reagan said that, particularly after his assassination attempt. So in, in light of the pressures they face and, and the responsibilities they have, it's not surprising that they would perhaps during that period of time be uh, more religiously attentive and responsive. Right. Uh, even take George Washington. He went to church faithfully while he was president, but no, at no other time of his life did he go nearly as regularly. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. Uh, you quote Peggy Noonan, in fact, who was a speechwriter uh, for at least portion of the Reagan years. Uh, I, she wrote, I can't imagine how a president could do his job without faith. Um, it's impossible for us to know their hearts. It's barely possible to know your own. Faith is important, but it's also personal. When we force political figures to tell us their deepest thoughts on it, they'll be tempted to act uh, to pretend. So I think she, just like you said, she points out that the strength of a person's faith, how helpful it can be, but also, I mean, we don't know people, how they may use it, given uh, how they're trying to curry favor with some segment of the population. Overall, though, do Americans view a, a, a a president that has a, uh, a you know perceived authentic faith. Do they perceive that as a plus? Oh, definitely. There's lots of polling data that would su- would sustain that uh, point uh, that has been emerged over the last forty years or so. Americans generally say that they want a president who prays, who seeks God's guidance, and most uh, people believe that there is definitely a connection between. Uh, religious faith and moral character, and so they most Americans believe that uh, if you're religiously involved and and have a church or synagogue affiliation, um, if you have a life of prayer and devotion, that you're going to have a higher character, and that's something that they value for the presidency. Mm-hmm. So certainly, uh, we, of course, we live in a more skeptical age than has ever existed in American history. We have more. N-O-N-E's than ever before, right. and some of those people have been stridently uh, objecting to uh, president's uh, religiosity, and and when there does seem to be a disconnect between people's past behavior and current actions as president, it's understandable. Right. But generally speaking, yes, Americans have said repeatedly that they prefer a president with a strong faith, and uh, 
even fairly recent polling says that as many as 40% of Americans say they wouldn't vote for an atheist for president. Yeah, yeah. We do seem to be in a transition. I, I don't know where it goes, but we seem to be back sliding away from some sort of civic shared values which are rooted in faith in God. I'm wondering, so in the past, you would expect a president, for instance, to end the State of the Union message uh, with something like, and God bless the United States of America, or trust is in God, or something of that sort. Is that kind of phrase going to receive increased criticism, you know, especially over the last two presidents? Uh, uh, let's just take Obama and Trump. Trump made it very clear he, d he doesn't want to cast an image as a very pious guy, but he still appeals to God. And I know conservatives, when they think of uh, Barack Obama, uh, they have a hard time understanding that he at least understood himself as a Christian. Are we just more skeptical today? Oh, we're definitely more skeptical today than we've ever been. And there's more <clears throat> uh, scrutiny, more analysis of presidents and who they are personally, what they say. Um, it's just amazing the uh, the attention that's given to candidates for the presidency and presidents. And so, yeah, there's there's and of course, presidents and this goes all the way back to George Washington, uh, see themselves rightly as president of all the people. Right. And Washington was very careful to try to protect the religious liberty of the small Jewish community that's in right. America uh, at the time of the uh, early republic and presidents down through history while maybe not well in the minds of some maybe transgressing the separation of church and state have certainly tried to not play favorites and uh, value the religious pluralism religious diversity that exists in our society uh, more recently uh, muslims and hindus and other advocates of other eastern religions have been brought into that with right. recognition of their holy days um, and and their their religious traditions so there are those concerns and I think they've become sharper in recent times because things, as you say, have become more polarized and criticism has become more strident and it's just ever present yeah. thanks to the Internet and other sources. Sure. Do you think that America, in dealing with this question of religion and the public square, and in particular religion and the faith of presidents— are we more likely to go in the direction of trying to eliminate religious references in the public square, or are we more likely to have a healthy principled pluralism? So, for instance, are we more likely for presidents to eliminate any reference to the traditional Christian holidays and also at the same time eliminate references to any of the minority religions' holidays, which are becoming, you know, more common, Hindu, Muslim, Ramadan, for instance, are they more likely to just stop making religious references for fear of offending minorities, or will they be more, uh, you know, magnanimous about it and just make the circle bigger around the various religious groups which uh, they find val worth uh, referring to? I I would like to think that we would favor the principal pluralism option yeah. uh, rather than the uh, naked public square option, right. that we would 
focus on valuing varied religious traditions rather than trying to exclude religion from uh, public life, particularly political life, um, I think that would be a mistake and I think that's practically impossible because religion informs principles and worldviews and, and people, uh, everybody has a worldview and it has to be based in something. Right. Yeah, so it's trying to trying to include trying to scrub religion out of politics is virtually impossible. We're going to come back, Dr. Gary Scott Smith, President's Day. And good afternoon to you. I'm Hal Cresta. With me, Dr. Gary Scott Smith. He is author of uh, some outstanding books dealing with the U.S. presidency and uh, the religious faith of those presidents. He's author of The Faith and the Presidency from George Washington to George W. Bush, and also Religion in the Oval Office, The Religious Lives of American Presidents. And I I love, I really do love uh, your work, uh, Gary, because you you have you have things here that uh, I could never have come across. Uh, I mean, the religious beliefs of William McKinley Smith, I mean, I just don't... <laughs> I am just tell me about William McKinley for heaven's sakes. What this is a president we don't think very much about these days, but of course we have the Spanish-American War that uh, involved him. He ran against uh, a very uh, talented evangelical, uh, and so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, William McKinley's background? Okay, well. That very talented evangelical you're referring to is William Jennings Bryan, and he's perhaps has more name recognition today than, than President McKinley because of the fact that he was involved in the Scopes trial and died shortly thereafter. So this was the evolution trial in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, but he was a three-time Democratic candidate for president and secretary of state for a while under Woodrow Wilson. But McKinley uh, grew up in... in uh, Canton, Ohio, near the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. Uh, he was a, a deeply religious Methodist, and his faith was very, very meaningful to him. Um, he, <clears throat> um, he had strong relations with the religious communities, uh, particularly Methodism. And perhaps most infamous or famous with regard to McKinley was the decision that he made uh, with regard to what to do with the Philippines in the context of the Spanish-American War. And it's often pointed to as perhaps the most blatant example of a president's faith influencing his policy. Uh, he told a group of Methodist ministers uh, a little some, some months after this happened that he was trying to decide what to do with the Philippines, and he was having trouble doing it. And he got down on his knees in the White House and prayed, and, and God directed him to um, that the, what needed to be done was for the United States to take control of the Philippines mm. and that that would be the best course of action because leaving them on their own, they, in his judgment, they weren't prepared for independence. The Spanish had not done that. Um, if left alone, probably Germany or Japan or some other nation would come in and, and take over and that would be bad for them. And he believed that we had a duty, a responsibility from God to groom them for independence of course, not everybody agreed with that, and the anti-imperialist league arose uh, with people like former President Grover Cleveland and Mark Twain and lots of other celebrities that uh, combated this. But 
Um, but anyway, he he was a, he was, of course he was assassinated very early in his second term. Uh, but but a man a man of deep deep faith and abiding faith. Um, what was his attitude towards uh, Catholics? Uh, he was a creature of his own time in mm-hmm. that um, there was somewhat of a divide uh, between Catholics and Protestants sure. uh, theologically and practically. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not as what occurred in the middle of the century. Uh, with the Know Nothing Party that arose and the anti-nativism that was connected with uh, the heavy Irish immigration that came across in the 1830s to the 1850s. Uh, but he generally strove to have positive relationships with Catholics, okay. um, and I think he succeeded in some regard. Because wasn't that part of the problem uh, regarding the Spanish, that they were there was some fear, some, some blurring of lines between Spanish nationality and Catholic religion? Well, and that's that's one of the uh, real strong criticisms of the statement that he made. Uh, he said when he was down on his knees praying, God showed him that we needed to uh, take over the Philippines to have to help Christianize them. Yeah, and of right, course, right. the Catholic Church had been there for 300 years at that point. <laughs> so that was a slap in the face and right. perceived uh, very negatively, as it should have been. Um, if he had said we wanted to Protestantize them, um, <laughs> that would have been <laughs> a little bit more uh, yeah. acceptable, perhaps. But, right, um, right. But, but but I think even Catholic leaders would would have recognized that the Catholic Church in the Philippines uh, was you know had its issues and and hadn't been as successful as as, as Catholic leaders would have wanted it to be. Sure, sure. Um, he, his the assassination uh, of McKinley, and again his premature death. Do we know anything about? Um, you know, his passing, and did it have any, was there any uh, stories surrounding well, we, his faith? Uh, yeah, we know that he that, that he prayed for, he, he lingered for several days after he was shot at a Pan-American exhibit in Buffalo, New York, in September of 1901. And and we know that um, during that time, he, he, he forgave his uh, assassin, um, and he expressed faith, although he was he was in and out of consciousness quite a bit during that period of time. There was a a, a great outpouring of, of love and sympathy uh, for him, and uh, a lot of people uh, resonated with his faith. Um, it certainly wasn't to the extent of the, the eulogies that we had for Lincoln um, after his assassination or Kennedy after his, but Nevertheless, uh, it would surprise readers to know that it was much more uh, effusive and, and, and the consequences were much harder for Americans to accept than they might have imagined. Mm. So there was, a, there was a great outpouring of love and, and sympathy for him and respect for his faith. And a lot of, of eulogies uh, obviously touched on his faith and his relationship with Christ. You know, I, I reason I chose uh, William McKinley is because most of us don't know that much about him. But even there, um, again, uh, Christian faith played an important role in his own self-understanding um, and in the nation's uh, understanding of his function. Let me kick it back a little bit uh, earlier and uh, tell, talk to me about Andrew Jackson, uh, again, we, we think of him as kind of a wild and woolly uh, uh, guy. Uh, what was his religious life like? Well, he was a Presbyterian, and I argue in a Religion in the Oval Office that his faith was, was very meaningful to him, mm-hmm. uh, much more 
uh, again, in the latter part of his life, particularly his presidency years and his post-presidency years than it was earlier. Um, earlier, of course, he was engaged in a lot of uh, military uh, endeavors, and he sowed some wild oats, and he was involved in some duels. Right. Um, so, you know, he had kind of this this kind of wild uh, uh, history coming into the uh campaign his first campaign for the presidency when he lost to John Quincy Adams in 1824 but uh as as president uh i argued that his faith was was deeply meaningful to him hmm. and influenced him in a number of ways um in terms of his his policies particularly with regard to um native americans and uh economics um so I would argue, and and then of course afterwards uh, he had his own church on his plantation in Tennessee, hmm. and lots of people um, who were there, um, you know, testified to his regular worship and prayer with his household. Uh, of course, it would have been in many cases slaves at this yeah, point, yeah. Um, household members and slaves, uh, but his concern for their their well being spiritually. Um, so I think there's ample evidence that faith played a, a significant role in the life of Andrew Jackson. You know, you you uh, mentioned the book that he didn't join a church until 1838, a year after he left the presidency. But this is another mm-hmm. thing that comes up time and again with American presidents, and that is that they they have a faith, but it doesn't always take expected institutional forms right away. I mean, Lincoln similarly um, has what appears to be a fairly uh informed biblical view of things uh, but uh, he's not known as a great churchman uh why why is that do you think with Jackson in particular yeah that's that's it's always an enigma when um when we talk about how religion is sometimes used by politicians to further their acceptance and their popularity and and promote their policies so when they don't take an obvious step like joining the church uh which would be widely perceived po- positively particularly in antebellum america right before the civil war mm-hmm. you, you wonder why they don't do it um you could point to other examples like you mentioned lincoln of why he never joined a church although i argue that he did pretty regularly attend from 1850 to the end of his life, both in Springfield, Illinois, and in Washington, D.C., uh, or we might point to, like, why didn't George Washington take communion? Right, yeah, that's uh, right. When when that would have been, uh, when not taking communion might have been perceived negatively sure. uh, by folks. Uh, so again, if they don't specifically tell us, then it's hard to know why they don't do that. For example, with Washington, I, I speculate that he may he may not thought he was worthy to take communion. Mm-hmm. He may not have believed what uh, communion stood for in the Episcopal Church um, at that time. Um, he may have recognized that he didn't have a personal relationship with Christ, and therefore it would not be appropriate for him to take communion. Yeah. But we don't know. Right. We're just guessing. Right. Um, so I'd have to say the same thing with Andrew Jackson, that we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're not, it's not crystal clear uh, why he doesn't join a church until that point. Um, he certainly doesn't, and we've had this other illustration that's kind of the reverse of what we're talking about with other presidents. They don't want what they're doing to be perceived to be done for a political purpose. So after he li- leaves the presidency, 
he can join a church without any political repercussions right, or discussion. Right, right, right. If he does it while he's president, then some are going to say, oh, you're doing this for political purposes. And, and he doesn't want to cast any negative aspersions on, on the church by, by so doing. Yeah. Um, Jackson's hardest trial was the sudden death of his wife, Rachel. Um, this was after he was elected president in 1828. Do we know much of how his faith helped him deal with that grief? It's hard to um, imagine any other president who grieved more deeply for a, a loss of a family member than Jackson did for his beloved Rachel. Um, and, and numerous presidents lost family members. If we go back to Lincoln, he lost two sons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we know that, that loss is uh, pretty pretty substantial for, for presidents. Or we think about how George H.W. Uh, Bush dealt with the loss of his young daughter from leukemia at mm-hmm. you know, age three or four, um, and how that basically was with him the rest of his life. But So I would say that faith plays a major role in Jackson's ability to um, cope with, with Rachel's loss. I think without faith at that point, he would have truly been floundering. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he de- definitely relied upon his relationship to God, with God, to see him through this crisis in his life. My guest is Dr. Gary Scott Smith. Looking at the religious lives of American presidents on this President's Day, he's the author of Religion in the Oval Office, and we'll be back with more. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Gary Scott Smith, has been a student of the religious lives of American presidents, and he's published uh, outstanding books, including Faith in the Presidency from George Washington to George W. Bush and Religion in the Oval Office, the Religious Lives of American Presidents. Let's jump to the uh, our own our own time. In some of the presidents that we uh, we might have memory of and kind of know best, uh, let's let's take somebody like Richard Nixon, a, a man who during you know his resignation after Watergate, and all the revelations uh, from the tapes that he, uh, that we learned about, uh, showed him to be, a, at times, a fairly salty dog. And, um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, he was close to Billy Graham. What kind of faith did he have? I mean, it, was, it seems rather hard to pin him down. Well, in one way it isn't, and in another way it is. Um, the, the hard way is that how can you profess faith and do the kinds of things he did. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you so blatantly um, lie and try to cover up your misdeeds and use the kind, of, engage in the kind of vulgarity that he employed? Um, so, yeah, that that's the difficult part. And we we recognize that we're all sinners and that we all fall short in sure. a variety of ways, um, and that. We all have inconsistencies in our lives. We all do things that are not consistent with the, the faith that we hold. But uh, the easy part is that he was raised in um, Quakerism, friends mm-hmm. uh, in California. And the friends or Quaker tradition he was raised in was not the kind that you might envision in the 19th century of silent meetings with no ministers and you sit around and wait until the Spirit prompts someone right. to speak. Yeah. Um, this was a, a, a friends slash Quaker denomination um, that or branch that had ministers and 
choirs and sang hymns and studied the Bible in in many ways were similar to other uh, to evangelical Protestants of that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Nixon grew up in that environment. Um, he he professed faith as a result of a revival service that he attended as a teenager. Uh, he professed to be born again. Um, he taught Sunday school for a while uh, in his younger years. Um, there's evidence that when he was in the Navy that he read uh, during the war, that he he read his Bible pretty regularly. Um, you know, he attended church pretty regularly wherever he was, whether in D.C. or he went to Norman Vincent Peale's Marbet Collegial, Collegiate Church in uh, Manhattan okay. um, when he was a lawyer there in the 60s. Um, so he, w- he was definitely involved in, in the church. Uh, of course, famously, when he became president, he decided that he was going to hold his own church services in the White House. Mm-hmm. And so he would bring in noted preachers like Billy Graham or Norman Vincent Peale or a variety of luminaries from other theological traditions, including uh, Catholicism, and hold services with him singing and preaching and some liturgical elements, and he himself would, would lead the, the, the non-preaching part of the services. So that drew some criticism. Uh, it also drew some, some applause from people. Um, did he think that uh, Christian faith was good for America? Oh, absolutely. And it would be hard to point to a president who didn't think that. Okay. Um, you know, back to George Washington, where he talks about in his farewell address that that religion and morality are the, are the cornerstones of the nation, and the, the nation is only going to succeed to the extent that its people are virtuous, and that virtue is highly dependent upon uh, religious faith. And that was a, a view that was shared by almost every founder. Uh, remember, they were trying to do something unique in human history, and that is craft a republic that was not just some small, isolated uh, place like the Netherlands or a Swiss canton, this is going to be a republic that was a thousand miles long, yeah. right? And eventually going to be uh, 3,000 miles wide. Right. So yeah, they're, they're, they're concerned. Is this going to work? Jefferson calls it a fair experiment. Um, yeah. and, and so they believed that religion was very valuable. But going back to, to Nixon, yeah, he, he certainly valued religion. Uh, he was a proponent of law and order. And to him, uh, that was highly dependent on an internal a compass that people had, uh, their own uh, commitment to following the rules without government uh, forcing them to do it. Ironically enough, of course, he didn't follow all the rules himself. Right, right. Did he, uh, you know, he had, a, he had a good period of time after his resignation uh, to think and to write. Uh, in his uh, writings, his memoir, does he talk about the role of faith uh, in his life? Not too much, a little bit. Um, Billy Graham, you mentioned his relationship with Billy Graham, and, and Billy Graham, uh, I believe, really did uh, Nixon a service in that he supported him probably longer than he should have in terms of his innocence with regard to Watergate. But mm-hmm. even after it became clear that that um, Nixon was uh, behind it all, uh, Graham stayed with him as a friend and as a as a spiritual advisor and. He just lavished his love upon uh, Nixon, and I think that really uh, helped Nixon a great deal as he dealt with the aftermath of that. Um, Of course, Nixon did some things that by his death, he was almost, again, a senior statesman in the Republican Party, deeply valued for his 
foreign policy insights and wisdom. Right. But I, yeah, I think I think that his his faith experienced some rejuvenation uh, post Watergate, post presidency. But again, it's it's difficult to know how deeply it affected him. Let me uh, jump to George H. W. Bush and uh, who. Uh, his, in his own, it was quite different than his son in the comfort level uh, with which he related uh, to evangelical uh, uh, Christianity. Um, in fact, uh, I recall somebody writing that uh, George W. Bush thought that one of the reasons his father uh, failed in his uh, re-election uh, against Bill Clinton, was that he didn't really know how to relate uh, warmly to the evangelical wing within the Republican Party, even though he personally was a man of deep Christian faith. Um, and George W. wasn't going to make that mistake when he ran in 2000. Do you, do you know anything about that? Well, absolutely. Uh, in fact, George W. worked for his dad um, during even the first campaign, to try to build some bridges between him and the evangelical community, as did Doug Weed, who wrote a campaign biography about uh, the faith of George H.W. Bush. Right, right. But I think it was a combination of H.W.'s uh, personality, as well as his life experience and his being a an Episcopalian uh, who didn't wear religion openly on his sleeve right. and being part of a tradition that didn't talk as as uh, easily and overtly about faith as evangelicals did. So I think it was a combination of those things that definitely uh, hurt uh, Bush um, in his re-election campaign in 1992. But I, I think he's a man of genuine faith, a man of, of, of deep faith. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, earlier about church-state separation and religious pluralism and openness to all communities. Um, during his 1988 campaign, uh, Bush basically uh, told uh, atheists that they they weren't true Americans. Um, he, <laughs> he really insulted them wow. and uh, drew a lot of uh, flack from uh, the main atheist organization in the United States. They couldn't believe what they were hearing, and he but he didn't back down. He stood behind what he said. <laughs> so, but anyway, I think you're absolutely right. George W. didn't want to repeat the. Uh, the uh, problems of his father, and of course he had bona fide evangelical credentials in a way that uh, George H.W. didn't, except for his relationship with Billy Graham, with whom he was very close. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me let me go to Bill Clinton then, who beat beat George H.W. Bush in the 1992 election, which was a, 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 a surprise to a lot of people because George H.W. Bush probably had the best resume going into the presidency in American history. Plus, he had won the Iraq War, but uh, he had the problem of raising taxes and, you know, defaulting on a campaign promise. And he also had uh, Ross Perot, who uh, nibbled away at uh, Republican votes. Talk to me about Bill Clinton, though, and his faith. Um, you know, we think of Bill Clinton, we think of Monica Lewinsky. We think of, you know, conservatives did not like Bill Clinton at all. Uh, how did Bill Clinton see himself as a Christian? Oh, he definitely saw himself as a, a strong Christian. Mm -hmm. um, he sang in the choir of a Southern Baptist church in Little Rock, a 4,000-member Southern Baptist church. Um, and again, people would say that was a, you know, a political ploy. Um, I think there's certainly 
evidence that there's a genuine spiritual hunger and spark in Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, some of his actions are um, inscrutable, (laughs) incongruous, um, incipherable, uh, nonsensical. but we can we can say here as a man who who let his uh, sexual interests uh, drive him in in unhealthy ways and ways that were detrimental to him and the country. But at the same time, um, this, this is a man who uh, knew the Bible pretty well, um, who quoted the Bible frequently, who went to church regularly, who had a wife who was a pretty devout Methodist and Hillary, mm-hmm. um, and and after Monica Lewinsky, uh, who basically tried to make it his his mission to broker peace in various parts of the world, peace and reconciliation, uh, in kind of a, a, almost as an atonement for what he had done. Right. Uh, he referred often to uh, repairs of the breach. I think it's Isaiah 58. But the idea that um, that was his mission. And so whether it's Northern Ireland or whether it's Bosnia or whether it's uh, in the Middle East um, with with Palestinians and Israelis, uh, he, he's working toward trying to bring about peace, and he sees that as an integral part of not just his presidency, but his own spiritual calling and mission. Yeah. So, again, it's it's almost schizophrenia in his case, I yeah. think. Yeah. The reason I like to bring up figures like Bill Clinton is because uh, I know how tempting it is for people to kind of write him off as a Christian. And yet, in all honesty— on what grounds do we get it? Can we do that, right? I mean, it, 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 sinners are sinners. Uh, and some are uh, d- d- more grand in their sins than others. And on what grounds do we just get to write somebody off? I mean, I have a hard time doing well, that. It, yeah, I do too. Because if you write him off, you've got to write off um, King David, right? Right. right. <laughs> Not as a yeah. Christian, but as a believer in sure, God. And this sure. is a man after God's own heart. And in many ways, um, his sin is much greater because he's got ample wives, and you know, <laughs> right, and right. he still gravitates toward a woman that's not his wife, and then he adds murder into the situation. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. 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 I mean, there's a, there's a great deal of room for forgiveness and understanding, and and again, only God knows people's heart of hearts. Yeah. No, I I agree, and. Uh, uh, so when you look over the history of the American presidency, Gary, uh, give me got about 60 seconds. Give me a summary of the role of religion in their lives. I think religion has played a tremendously important role in the lives of American presidents. Not all of them, but a substantial number of them. The, the 22 that I write about in the two books you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, for them— uh, religion was a very, very important aspect of their personalities and helped direct their philosophy of government, helped direct their policy making, uh, helped them in interpersonal relationships. So uh, not it wasn't entirely positive, but I would argue that it was largely po- their faith was largely positive and helped them in a variety of ways be better men, better presidents. Uh, and and thereby help the United States as a country. Well, thank you so much, Gary. You've helped us understand uh, the role of religion in the lives of the American presidents, and uh, hope we talk again soon. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me as a guest, Al. God bless. Dr. Gary Scott Smith, again, two outstanding books, Faith and the Presidency from George Washington to George W. Bush and Religion in the Oval Office. 